Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, the political podcast that can't stop tap dancing towards November. No matter how bloody our feet get, no matter how many bones we dislocate from our permanent case of inside the Beltway jazz hands. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, coming to you from our Los Angeles studio. And as always, this has been a week. Coming up on the show today, things get sexy when Meredith Graves shares her thoughts on Clarence Thomas. Rawr. Jane Coaston takes us inside the case of a governor who took a beach house from a businessman. Julie Zeilinger brings Amy Hagstrom Miller back to the show for an update on the recent Supreme Court abortion ruling. And Marcus Ellsworth delivers a hate letter to America's love affair with firepower. But first, sticking with the overall theme of sexiness, Darcy Wilder interviews Amy Rose Spiegel, author of Action, a book about sex. Former rookie editor Amy Rose Spiegel is the author of Action, a book about sex. It's part memoir and part guidebook with chapters like How to Eat Pussy and An Introduction to Ass, yet it stays away from tiresome magazine-style advice by not defining sex itself or telling you who you should and shouldn't do it with. Her language is inclusive and non-gendered, and there's a strong focus on consent. In other words, this is right up our alley, and wow, are we sorry for putting that metaphor there at the end. MTV News social media editor Darcy Wilder sat down with Spiegel in our New York studio to talk about her book. Hi, Darcy. Hi, MTV. Hello. Would you like to read from your book, Action, a Book About Sex? I would love to. So this is from an essay in the book called Age of Consent, which is about, guess what? Um... The Care and Keeping of Reptiles. No, it's about consent. Okay, so this is a little part from that. Sex, for all its virtues, is weird, which is also frequently one of its virtues. It can be hard to know what another person likes, wants, or is thinking, or whether they're able to gauge what you like, want, or are thinking without an explicit, out loud announcement from you, or vice versa. Treating your partners like passive sexual objects is not only insulting and wrongheaded, but also overlooks the reality that it's crucial to ask the same consent-based questions you require of them. Once you get into the habit of putting words to that murky stuff, it'll be a massive relief and, as a result, a more enjoyable, less intimidating headspace in which to go about going at it. The first tenet of consent is, each yes you give expires after a single use. Since you are a person with mutable feelings, you might want to do something one day with one person in one setting, but you're not bound to those feelings forever. So, since you're going to be giving a lot of it, it's time we delve into some specific ideas about how to grant someone consent and how to decisively withhold it. The ideal time to talk about what your sexual limitations are is prior to becoming embroiled in a physical situation where someone might be straining at them. When I started seeing one long-term boyfriend, we spent a lot of time talking before anything beyond entry-level kissing took place between us. And while most of that conversation probably concerned our differences of opinion about what the best episode of The Simpsons was, we also asked each other plenty of questions about where to pause and check our sexual mile-marking systems to see if we were on the right track. Our answers were given candidly. I told him that at the time, I was inclined to wait a bit longer before having sex, among some other things that seemed intense to me. In turn, he told me about his history with sexual trauma, which made me rethink being too rough with him in ways I would have otherwise thought were playful when we actually started doing stuff together. 
Not every sexual situation is going to come out of a relationship, though. Though that one was awesome while it lasted, I also find that, whoa, so is attaching my face to people whose middle or even last names I don't know. Those experiences prove the plenitude of frank, direct, flirtatious, and gentle ways to make consent a part of every hookup, regardless of how well you might be acquainted. If someone is coming on a bit strong for your tastes, tell them to alter what they're doing or to stop if you prefer. If you're all right with the former, pull away by a few inches and say something like, do that more slowly or gently or however you'd like them to change it. No matter what that directive is, don't couch it in language like, I don't think I want to do that yet, if you're sure you don't want to do that yet. You don't have to water down what you know in your heart slash parts to be true, and your boundaries are not up for renegotiation unless you say and mean that they are. Thanks so much. Would you like to give us a little overview about the book? Sure. Action is a weird hybrid book that's part memoir, part guidebook, part just nonfiction essay about everything to do with fucking. So things like gender and consent, as much as things like an introduction to uh, ass, an introduction to different kinds of uh, like threesomes and group sex, that kind of thing. How do you feel like your sexual history impacted the advice that you give in the book? It's hard to trust somebody who's giving you advice if you don't know them from Adam. So I wanted to really, I don't know, kind of <laughs> show as well as tell. Um, the most important advice in the book is probably love and do what you will, which is um, from St. Augustine. It's like an overarching kind of motto that drove me to do this. Cool. So yeah, um, blame Catholicism for this <laughs> fucking book. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are your like most interesting experiences, do you think, that you like describe in the book? There was a part where I talk about fetishes where a guy is having me sneeze for him. There's a part where I have to think about um, the fact that I've had sex with three different people in a day and what mm -hmm. that's like. There's a lot. I would hope that the thing that people are most interested in when they're reading is their own reaction to what they're reading, to gauging their own feelings about it and their own opinions on it. Do you want to talk more about the sneezer and what that was like for you? He just, he was, he's a rapper, so he like was a very, very loquacious dude, just like constantly, constantly like rap, like talking, 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 talking. And then like when it came to telling me about this fetish that he had, he wouldn't do it. Like, he, not that he wouldn't do it, he was just really sh like shy, like w very reluctant to get into it. And so I'm guessing, I'm guessing all these different things, and he finally comes out and he's like, I really like it when girls sneeze. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, no, I love it when girls sneeze. Like, it's, you know, it's cr like, I was like, well, how is that for you in public? Like, on a train if somebody sneezes, he's like, I have to look away because they think that like I'm looking at them like oh gross and I'm actually leering like being a creep and it's like awful forever and I was like uh, you're a very polite person about your sneezing fetish damn. Like, yeah so did he know that it was a fetish or was it just something that he was like attracted to he knew it was a fetish for sure okay. um and he had a whole system that he showed me where I would twist up like tissue paper and like kind of prod it into my nostril and like I wouldn't even like be naked or anything I'd just be like sitting on my bed and I would do that and I would sneeze and every, like, it, you know when you sneeze, you kind of do the, the mm -hmm. I think it might be something to do with that. Like, I'm oh, not sure, yeah. but yeah, whatever. I, so you, I build up, you know, you, but then every time I sneezed, he shot like immediately, oh. like, like nothing I've ever seen. 
there was like a thing, I feel like a few years ago on Facebook, everyone was like, oh, sneezes are great. They're like an orgasm for your face. I, it it definitely, there are corollaries there. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the way that you wrote about consent in like an interesting way and like approached it like really delicately. Do you have any like tips on how to like practically discuss like consent? I always really loved it and continue to love it when people have said to me and say to me like, is this all right? Are you into this? Do you like it when I? I think that excess is actually really hot because mm-hmm. it shows that somebody respects you enough to take into account your sexual autonomy as much as theirs. And that th- that's a great place to go from. Yeah. So when it comes to talking about it in the moment, I think that if people are worried about like interrupting, A, that's not a real worry, and B, make it hot. Just be mm-hmm. like, do you like it when I, can I, et cetera. Like, it's sexy to talk to somebody while you're boning or kissing or whatever the fuck you're doing. I think it makes it great. And Sweet. it also makes it sex instead of, like, something yeah. far more nefarious. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's necessary. Yeah. How do you feel like you approach writing about sex in a different way in action than other writings about sex handle things, being that it's 2016 and that the conversation is, like, changing? So I feel like... I wrote this book about sex as myself, and it's a really highly specific book within that. And I feel like when it comes to sex writing, there's maybe not so much as of that as there is like the Dan Savage school of like correspondence, like answering letters, or a you know medical doctor telling you what's good, which is amazing, and I'm all about both of those things. I just wanted to be. Um, a person in the world who is just as qualified as every other person in the world by dint of like having a body and experiences. I didn't, I think it's, I think it's a little weird that sex is like the rarefied like domain of people who are like only giving advice or are, you know, trying to provide medical help in some way. There's, there's, it's a part of life outside of those things too. And so I ended up with this book that's like kind of all over the place because the way I feel about sex is all over the place. Yeah. That also makes sense because coming from the like, you know, the correspondence answering, oh, so there's a problem or the medical place. And then your book seems to have like, oh, you're supposed to have fun. And like, it's supposed to be playful. Doesn't always have to be a problem to approach it. Thanks so Mm -hmm. much. That's a really great point. I haven't ever thought about it that way, but that's a really salient way of putting it. The idea that in order to like be answering advice questions, there has to be a problem. Mm -hmm. There doesn't have to be a problem. And I also didn't want it to to feel like one of those books where, you know, the young heroine is getting into messy misadventures and oh, isn't she crazy for this one? Because I don't think it has to be that way. You can just be a person. Mm -hmm. That's okay too. Yeah. That makes so much sense. Um, it also reminds me of the like having a problem with like the talk about consent, you know, the implication or like that it's not there. No, like that that is like the necessary thing to make everything else happen. So mm-hmm. we're we're coming from the assumption that it's there and that it's great and that okay, it's there and it's great. How are we going to make it like fun and conversational and communicative and respectful and sweet? as mm-hmm. well as just there, which yeah. we know it is. Yeah, because yeah. It, yeah, it can't be the bare minimum. Be. That's yeah. it. 
That was MTV's Darcy Wilder in conversation with Amy Rose Spiegel, author of Action, a book about sex. Speaking of action, can we talk about Clarence Thomas? The superheroic Supreme Court justice was in the news this week for doing anything whatsoever. Okay, let's try that again. The great thing about Clarence Thomas, though, is when he does rouse himself to participate in the business of the court, he takes really excellent positions. So wise, so thoughtful, so I can't even continue with this charade, y'all. Here to take us inside the mind of the great jurisprudist is Clarence Thomas's number one fan, MTV News host Meredith Graves. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is an asshole. Clarence Thomas is an asshole like David Blaine is a magician, like David Byrne is a musician, like Samuel L. Jackson is an actor, like Wu-Tang is for the children, which is to say he's dedicated his life to the art of being not just an asshole, but the best, most committed asshole he can possibly be. And this week, he's been a virulent, ignorant, inaccurate, biased, and unfair asshole on two topics near and dear to many Americans who prefer living to being dead, abortion and guns. The thing about this week's abortion ruling is that it basically just says, hey, Texas legislators, you were a little too obvious with the pro-life thing in the past. So now when you say you're passing abortion laws on the grounds that you're attending to the possible health concerns of the patient, we are going to correctly assume you're lying to advance an archaic and sex negative biblical agenda. This week, the ruling determined Texas's current HB2 abortion laws, which require abortion clinics to adhere to the same health codes as outpatient facilities and for all abortionists to have hospital admitting privileges, despite the fact that most abortions are uncomplicated outpatient procedures, sometimes as simple as taking two pills before going home to rest, are unconstitutional, on the grounds that they violate a decision made decades ago when the Supreme Court decided that forcing a person to go through undue burden in order to access abortive services is unconstitutional. Clarence Thomas, whose brain I think automatically censors the word women and replaces it with a sound clip of a gavel hitting a human face repeatedly, doesn't actually care about the suffering and or dead Texans who've either been forced to carry unwanted or risky pregnancies to term or go through the state's demeaning, racist, classist, oppressive process for gaining access to legally protected medical procedures. He says amending the Constitution arbitrarily, as if there hasn't been pregnancy termination as long as people have been able to get pregnant, is going to overcomplicate things. I quote, The court has simultaneously transformed judicially created rights like the right to abortion into preferred constitutional rights, while disfavoring many of the rights actually enumerated in the Constitution. But our Constitution renounces the notion that some constitutional rights are more equal than others. A plaintiff either possesses the constitutional right he is asserting or not. And if not, the judiciary has no business creating ad hoc exceptions so that others can assert rights that seem especially important to vindicate. A law either infringes a constitutional right or not. There is no room for the judiciary to invent tolerable degrees of encroachment." End quote. I don't know that I've ever made it to the end of the Constitution, so don't tweet spoilers at me or anything. But I'm pretty sure nobody put a little post-it note at the end under Button Gwinnett's signature that says, P.S. guys, don't forget, no abortion, money for pizza on the fridge, be home at nine. But sure, get mad at people who, despite not sharing your beliefs, are trying to give your precious document as close of a reading as you do. I can't stress this enough. If you're out there listening, you can believe whatever you want to believe, which I'm pretty sure is a loose version of what it actually says in the Constitution, as long as it doesn't infringe on the health, happiness, and rights of other rational citizens. 
Clarence Thomas's beliefs in both the right to life and laws ostensibly put in place to protect women and ensure their safety only extend as far as a cluster of cells ponging around in somebody's uterus. Because while he condemns anyone who believes abortion should be readily available, safe, and free from stress or apology, he also argues that it's somehow unconstitutional to forbid registered domestic abusers from having access to firearms. In Voisin versus the United States, Thomas was called upon to make a moral judgment regarding two reckless convicted domestic abusers and whether or not they're legally allowed to possess firearms. He said, give me another area where a misdemeanor violation suspends a constitutional right. A misdemeanor violation. More women who are murdered by their partner are killed by guns than with all other possible weapons combined. More than half of women murdered with guns in the United States are killed by intimate partners or family members. And most importantly, like I can't stress this enough, victims of domestic violence are 12 times more likely to be killed when a gun is involved. A woman who has already been abused by her partner is five times more likely to be killed by that same partner if said partner owns a gun. More than half of mass shootings target an intimate partner. Of those attacks, 81% of the victims are women and children, the people pro-life laws claim to protect. Clarence Thomas, you are an asshole because you'd rather uphold an outdated document written without any input from women or people of color than allow people to terminate risky or unwanted pregnancies. You are an asshole because you want to put guns back in the hands of men who beat women, despite the fact that one of the only ways background checks for gun purchases have worked is when it comes to keeping firearms out of the hands of domestic abusers. You are an asshole because you hold both these beliefs at once while claiming to be pro-life. I don't even have a kitschy kicker for this one this week. I just really wanted to say... Fuck you. That was MTV's Meredith Graves on American Hero to Assholes Everywhere, Justice Clarence Thomas. Hi, me again, Holly Anderson, host of The Stakes. I just wanted to let you guys know that you can now subscribe to The Stakes on iTunes in its own individual feed. I'm not sure why you'd want to do that exactly when you could be getting it right alongside North Mollywood, Skillset, and our other great shows, but unlike most of the U.S. government, I'm not here to judge your perversions. Thanks a lot. Love ya. In actual Supreme Court news, justices this week delivered a dramatic victory for supporters of women's reproductive rights in the case of Whole Women's Health v. Hellerstedt, which struck down a Texas law mandating abortion clinics to meet standards which weren't required to safely perform abortions and effectively shut down most clinics in the state. The majority decision was written by notably male justice Stephen Breyer, so take note, Matt McGorry, this is how it's done, buddy. Reach for those stars. Anyway, to mark this occasion, we're bringing back one of our favorite guests. MTV Founders Deputy Editor Julie Zeilinger called up Amy Hagstrom Miller, the founder of Whole Women's Health, to talk about her victory. Hi, is this Amy? This is Amy Hagstrom Miller. Sorry, it took me a little while to get to you. How are you? Great. No, it's, it's so great to talk with you again. I'm so glad that you could you could join us again under great circumstances. So first of all, congratulations on the victory. I know this case has involved years of tireless work. Um, so can you describe mm-hmm. what it feels like to have all that effort come to fruition? And what have the past few days since this ruling been like for you? 
You know, it's just, I'm just like ecstatic, really. Um, you know, we got honestly more than we ever dreamed of. I've been very careful since the beginning, um, knowing that, you know, we're sort of the little guy against one of the most powerful state governments in, in the country. And so I've been um, careful with hope, um, mm-hmm. you know, as we inch closer to the, to the decision day, my team was getting, we were getting more and more like anxious. Um, mm-hmm. And it was incredible not only to hear um, Justice Breyer just like really slice, um, slice and dice the state um, and set legal precedent, not only for just saying that the ambulatory surgical center requirements and the admitting privileges have no benefit, um, but the decision was so broad it gave us so much relief in Texas, and we got more than we asked for for Texas. But then since that time, um, you know, Mississippi, Wisconsin, Alabama have all fallen. Um, and we're looking at, you know, places like Missouri and Tennessee and Louisiana um, to follow closely. When the decision first came down, I was sitting in the courtroom. Um, and you can't, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in the Supreme Court, but you can't, like, stand up and cheer. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because there's, like, federal marshals everywhere. You can't make any noise at all. Um, and so it was just, you know, I was like this little kid in a candy store just sitting in my seat, just beaming. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And, and while this ruling yeah. is certainly a victory, uh, it's, I think it's also yeah. important to zoom out a little bit. And the fact remains yeah. that the legislation this decision overturns already effectively closed a lot of abortion clinics in Texas and beyond Texas. A lot of other states right. have similarly unnecessary laws. So can you describe how this win will enable women to actually access the right to abortion, given the current closures and lack of immediate on the ground mm-hmm. resources? you know, clinics don't reopen overnight. And I think that's, it, you know, it's hard to talk about that because I want to be so positive because this decision is so powerful. It's that such legal precedent and really just puts a stop to this sort of copycat legislation that's been really just sort of spreading all throughout the Midwest and the South for years now. And so this moment where we were able to stand up to the big guys and say, no more, you've gone too far, so powerful. Um, but the destruction that laws like this have done um, to the service um, provider sector of our field is, is profound. And, um, you know, we've had to close clinics upwards of three years ago. And so we've got to find, um, you know, we've got to find staff and physicians. We've got to find new spaces to either buy or lease. One of the things we're noticing right away um, is that because of the ruling, we're able to um, use all of the physicians um, who we had used prior to HB2 in our clinics to offer services to women. Um, you know, we had many board-certified, highly trained doctors who were fantastic who weren't able to get privileges. And so now we're able to actually add those physicians back to our staff team right away. Mm. So that's allowing us to um, open our clinics that we currently have in Fort Worth and McAllen and San Antonio for more days uh, with more hours to be able to meet the need. You know, right away, some of the doctors who used to work with us were texting myself and and Andrea, who works with me. What steps are being taken to actually move a step forward and address making abortion services increasingly accessible and safe? What's next in this fight? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, what what we took on here is what what is sometimes referred to as a supply-side restriction. When the state tries to close clinics by, you know, having a physical plant requirement or having a um, admitting privileges requirement, et cetera. And I think some of the next things that w- I would love to see us be able to take on are these are these restrictions that affect um, that are restrictions on the women themselves. So waiting periods, 
enforced ultrasounds, um, mandatory two-visit requirements. I, I think it would be interesting for us to try to take on some of these things that are sort of based on that women aren't capable of making a moral and ethical decision of complexity and they need to take more time to think, et cetera. A lot of these restrictions um, could, could fall based on the notion that um, they're based on untruth and they don't carry forward their, what they call legally their stated purpose. You know, the state of Texas tried to make this argument that they were interested in women's health and safety. And what we illustrated is that was not their purpose. And I think we have a real open door to challenge the sort of misinformation that informed a lot of these other restrictions. Um, And it's kind of an amazing time that this did happen, considering the rest of the election season that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. Do you think this victory will make politicians and the media complacent about addressing reproductive rights during this election season going forward? Oh, absolutely not. I think far from it. I think, you know, you look at the crowds that have been gathering at the at the Supreme Court over the last few months, and there is a tremendous amount of young people, people of color. The movement is much more diverse, and it's much more intersectional than it was before, and I think that makes us so much stronger. Amy, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. That was MTV's Julie Zeilinger in New York in conversation with Amy Hagstrom-Miller. Just a few years ago, former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell was seen as a rising star in Republican politics. But the all-American governor had an all-American problem. He couldn't afford to pay the mortgages on his beach houses. Tragic, right? Luckily, Governor McDonnell made a friend a really nice friend, a CEO of a Virginia-based company who stepped in to help out with the house payments. That CEO also bought the governor Rolex watches, took Mrs. McDonald on lavish shopping sprees, even paid for their daughter's wedding reception, definitely not in return for political favors. No, just kidding, it totally was. In 2014, federal courts indicted Governor McDonnell for corruption and taking bribes. But on Monday, the Supreme Court voted unanimously to overturn McDonnell's conviction. So maybe everything's cool now? MTV political writer Jane Coaston talked to Robert Barnes of the Washington Post to find out what this landmark corruption case means for the Beach House Industrial Complex. So what were some of the concerns that were coming out regarding this indictment? Because... Technically, what Bob McDonald and his wife did was not against Virginia state law. So to follow up on that, though, was it against federal law? He was charged with uh, violating federal laws about public officials and bribery. And at the heart of it was, what is an official act? You have to find that, that there has been a quid pro quo in which the public official has taken an official act to help someone in return for gifts and benefits that he got. A jury convicted both McDonald's of violating that law. An appeals court upheld their convictions, and then they went to the Supreme Court. And they said that uh, the jury instructions had been wrong, that the prosecution of this case was wrong because he had not taken any official actions. The prosecutors and the government said, no, that's, that's wrong. The official actions that he took were holding a reception for Williams at the governor's mansion, uh, introducing him to the people 
who could make uh, these studies happen. The governor let him sort of edit a guest list for a reception that talked about his product, and that these were all things that were official actions uh, of the governor. So thinking about how this case will affect corruption trials in other cases and in other states, do you think that this will have a chilling effect on the efforts of prosecutors or states to go after public officials for corruption charges? Especially since in this case, it appears that if you can accept gifts from someone, have them pay your mortgage to your beach house, host events for them at the governor's mansion, but then not do whatever it is that they wanted you to do in the first place, then apparently, according to the Supreme Court, that is not corruption. Do you think that that would be a concern for future investigations into corruption? I think it definitely is a concern. You know, there were competing uh, sides in this, as you might imagine. And this is one of those cases where I think lawyers uh, see things uh, very differently than perhaps uh, a member of the public does. And the public reaction to this was, you know, that it was terrible, that the governor shouldn't be accepting gifts from people. Uh, It was totaled up about $175,000 worth of loans and goods that the McDonald family got from Johnny Williams. On the other hand, the lawyers say you have to be very specific about this kind of thing because otherwise you have to know exactly what crosses the line because otherwise uh, sort of routine gestures that politicians do for people who contribute money to their campaign, for instance, or just happen to be friends, then all of that will be suspect. It was interesting that McDonald, um, McDonald got a lot of support across partisan lines from uh, attorneys general around the country, from uh, former White House counsels for, of both parties saying uh, that this conviction needed to be overturned because it sent the wrong message and it made almost anything that a politician might do uh, in response for uh, a, a contribution or a favor makes them all suspect. So you've talked before about how Conservatives were hopeful about this Supreme Court term, obviously more so before Scalia died, but they were hopeful that there would be conservative rulings coming from this court. And that doesn't seem to have happened. Do you think that this would constitute a conservative victory? Because from what you're saying, it sounds as if it's less liberal versus conservative and more lawyers versus the public, so to speak. I I think that's right. I don't think this is one that you could count as either a conservative or a liberal victory. I mean, for one thing, the court was unanimous. And so in this, that means you've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg agreeing with Clarence Thomas that this is the way the case should have come out. So I don't don't think it is particularly partisan or even ideological. I I think it's uh, sort of legal versus uh, sort of the public's view of a thing. You know, one of the responses to this was, you know, politics as usual is is so overwhelming that 
people can't see where the corruption in it is anymore. And so I think it's one of those kind of things. And the court was very uh, sensitive to this. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote the opinion, and he went out of his way to say that the court was not saying that McDonald had not done anything wrong. He described this as a tawdry tale, and he said that it was misbehavior or perhaps something worse, but that it wasn't illegal. So I think one thing that people who aren't from this area might not know is that not only did this case bring down the McDonald's, it also served to kind of take down the gubernatorial hopes of his attorney general. Can you talk about what the fallout from this case has been for Virginia politicians and for Virginia politics as a whole? Well, I think that it really hurt uh, Republicans. He had been seen as a very popular governor, someone who was sort of headed for bigger things. When the race to succeed him was going on, all of this was very much in the news, and it made the party look bad. It sort of eliminated any role that he might have in trying to campaign for the Republican to take his place. And so it did have a lot of, uh, it had a lot of impact here. You know, also the McDonald marriage uh, seemed to break up. Uh, they, there was a lot of sort of uncomfortable testimony at the trial about uh, Mrs. McDonald. The children had to testify against her and seemed to make it appear that she was the one behind trying to get all of these gifts and that their father didn't know uh, much about it. It was, a, it was an unfortunate and kind of ugly uh, family dynamic on display in the trial as well. So for people who are interested in the Supreme Court or in reading the tea leaves of the Supreme Court from the rulings, so to speak, what would you say are the biggest takeaways from this ruling? Um, You mentioned how attorneys and the public differ as one. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think this is one that, uh, you know, sort of if you presented these facts to any member of the public, they would say, well, this is wrong. This is not something an elected official, especially the governor of a big and important state, should be doing. If you presented them to lawyers, they would say, well, what, how exactly did he break the law? You know, where, show me exactly in the law books uh, what he did. And I think that's what the court was sort of struggling with. It's still, I don't think, is terribly clear exactly what an official act is, even after the court has taken this case up. And and um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote that setting up a meeting could be an official act if you could prove that the purpose of it was to influence a decision maker or uh, make sure that something came out one way or the other. And so I think there's still a lot of gray areas in the law. The federal prosecutors say that they're going to continue with prosecutions they have uh, in other cases. But I think clearly it sort of raises the hurdles for them in proving that uh, a public official has abused his or her office. Thank you so much for talking to me. This was really interesting. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was MTV's Jane Coaston in D.C. with Robert Barnes of The Washington Post. 
We're going to close things out this week with another trip to Tennessee to hear a piece from our very own poet in residence, the T.S. Eliot to our Lloyd's Bank, the Wallace Stevens to our Hartford Insurance Company, MTV political writer Marcus Ellsworth. I think of you here in the dark where bodies collide and spirits thrive. Colors flash, spin, and pulse to the whims of the DJ. I hear laughter, shouts of joy, the voices of the choir in the church of the dance floor. Then I think I hear you just below the bass. Is that your rhythm coming to silence the music in our chests? I hold my breath and wait. I scan the room for any sign of you, a certain kind of spark, a panicked shift in the crowd, some kind of warning. But you never come. No one slung you on their arm and escorted you to the party this time. But you are loved so much. Surely someone will ask you to the dance again so you can stop the show. And that's why I hate you. I hate you and all of your kin, from the youngest of your kind, still horrible yet new to the world, to your oldest, most infamous battle-worn cousins, because you and your entire extended family have but one purpose to your existence, to kill, with accuracy, efficiency, and power. I only know your names because you have met your purpose so well, making you beloved to some, even though you have been pivotal in stealing away so many beloved. We put your cold kindred in arm's reach of as many as possible. It's easier to get you than it is to get health care or an education or the promise that I am safe. I watch for signs of you in movie theaters. I worry you might visit my nephew's school. I see you in nightmares where you dance and my friends are left to lie still. But this is America. We love you, our guns. So much so that we don't care about safety or training or restrictions or even basic requirements that could keep you from hands that will only write endings. So let's forget about gun control. You are the dream of gunslingers. Imagining themselves as heroes, as patriots, as paladins of a god that weeps at their devotion. Their will to kill is greater than thou, O Lord. They prophesy that good guys with guns could or would or want to save lives. So when will they? How will they? How is killing anyone an acceptable answer to any problem? The promise of violence will not stop violence. The promise of peace will not stop violence. I don't know what will stop violence. I just want to make it harder for violence to happen. I want something to stand between you and me and everyone. I want you erased from history. I want you banned from my memory. I want to unravel time and take you from the hands of everyone who has held you in their embrace. I want to empty the world of you and fill it with the renewed life of those slain by your zealots. I want to eradicate everything that deems you necessary to some. I want no one to want you. I want you unmade. I want you gone. Instead, I count the dead and recite the pledge. As flags are lowered to half-mast, 
knowing this country's colors will never fly as high as they could, as long as this land belongs to guns. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.